Episode 195 is here, everybody, with the resilient man. I was really blown away by this conversation. Sometimes you're just blown away in life when you meet somebody or talk to somebody and they're able to find a silver lining in such a horrific situation. That was the case in this conversation that I had with this man who lost his mother at the age of, when he was only 14 years old, his mother committed suicide. And he was able to take that and turn it into somehow a positive experience. Somehow, ironically, he was able to make a horrific situation and find a silver lining which ultimately set him on his path and his entrepreneurial journey. Fascinating conversation with a fascinating man. The founder of Got Mold, a man who went from high school dropout to Wall Street to now business owner, Got Mold. Please welcome the one and only Jason Earl. The Optimal Life. So this is the first time I get to bring on the uh, uh, what what somebody refers to as a healthy home evangelist. <laughs> this is very exciting, Jason. How are you today? Excellent. Thanks for having me, Nate. So I'm curious, back to your childhood, back to your teenage years, you went through quite a bit of adversity. And let's start there. You were 16 years old when your mother committed suicide. Is that correct? Uh, I was, I just turned 14. You were 14. Um, yeah, I just turned 14. I was in uh, uh, ninth grade, and um, and yeah, that was it. Was uh, that was probably the most transformative experience of my life. Um, and without without, I mean, we can we've obviously here to chat about a lot of different things. But as a, as a foundational aspect, I would actually argue that my mother's suicide um, was perhaps the best thing that ever happened to me. And whenever I say that people kind of look at me askance because they don't quite understand what that means I, I love my mother I, I, I would do anything to have her back even just for for a, for a hug um, but the the trajectory that that event um, put me on I would argue that on a, on a larger basis and I would you know maybe even on a spiritual basis I would argue that she gave me the gift of her suicide um, because it opened up my mind to looking at how our how our perspective in life, it's the quality of our life. Um, she had lost perspective. Uh, she 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 was uh, overworked and and underpaid, and also took very took took the her her divorce with my father to heart very deeply. Also, the previous divorce and considered herself a failure. Um, but she just lost she lost touch with the magic of the universe. And I had as a teenager, right around that time, I had also lost touch with the magic of the universe. And I was not suicidal, but I would say I was. Su- I, I, I entertained, I, I ideated, um, and and I listened to all the wrong music and all that kind of stuff. I was a, I was a very unhappy teenager. Um, and when she died, it, it somehow I was already in therapy uh, because of all the family drama that we had, and so I had I had some tools and I had some perspective. And quite frankly, I was also experimenting with a lot of psychedelics. And I and that looking back now, the the. I believe that that probably was was one of the, the key elements of me being able to assimilate that experience of, of her committing suicide and to recognize that she had lost that perspective and for me to gain or regain that perspective. Um, and so from that point forward, I, I realized that it was up to me to, to, to determine the quality of my life. And, uh, and shortly thereafter, I got Lyme disease, or at least I was diagnosed with Lyme disease and then treated very aggressively with antibiotics, which knocked me 
out. I mean, it was three days on, three days off of antibiotics, and so I was sick and vomiting for three days and then sleeping for three days. I missed a ton of school. And the combination of those two things uh, caused the school to uh, 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 flag me and basically tell me that I was going to have to repeat my junior year or, or leave. Um, and it was only Jan- They pulled me into the office one day in January. We'd only been in school for a couple of months, and they told me to leave. Uh, or to, or that I was going to have to uh, repeat the year. Hmm. So, um, so I, I immediately uh, pulled the trigger and I and I dropped out of high school. Um, I actually called my father from a payphone and said, "Hey, listen, they're trying to, to to get me to 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 stick around here for another year. Nobody wants me here. I don't want to be here. Uh, I'm going to sign out." And my father said, "Because I knew this call would come one day." And uh, and I said, "Well," he goes, "What's your plan?" And I said, well, "I'm going to drop out, go to the gas station where I work part time and get full time hours and save money and get my GED and start college a year early." And, you know, there's no better revenge than massive success. And I, I, I had no idea what that meant at the time, but I heard it and I repeated it. And so I, uh, I, my, my father's a little bit of an anarchist and he drove right down and, uh, signed me out of school. And as I was walking out the door, um, he, uh, I was walking with him towards the car and he goes, where are you going? I said, I'm going to going home with you. And he goes like, hell you are. You're going to, going to work. You're a man now. Uh, so I walked down to the gas station from school and told the owner of the gas station that I just dropped out and I needed some more hours. And she goes, great, I got another loser. And I said, no, well, let, me, let me explain what's going on here. So I told her, and she goes, well, in that case, she fired the guy on the pump that minute and, and handed me his cash and said, you'll finish this shift uh, and you'll be here tomorrow morning because you're on the calendar. And I worked my ass off. I loved it. I was getting more money on tips than I was uh, in my hourly wage. And, and uh, that was where I met the guy who recruited me to come work on Wall Street. Let me ask you, going back, though, to the 14, 14 years old, because... It sounds like you were able to handle this devastating loss in a pretty um, beneficial way or the, the outlook that you had because you were still in school. I mean, as a 14-year-old kid, I'm trying to get into the psyche. What was the feeling like when, when your mother was no longer here? What were those first days, weeks, and months like for you? That's a really good question. Um, there was a huge amount of denial at first. I, I remember when, when uh, I was sitting in in school. I was actually sleeping in, in Spanish class, and my guidance counselor came out to get me, and she looked very concerned. And I thought I had gotten in trouble. <laughs> I, thought they, I thought I was going to. Yeah. You know, I, discipline was coming my way because she didn't come and get me for, for no reason. And uh, so I walked in to the principal's office, and there is my father and my therapist, who is my, 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 my rock most wonderful man I've ever known and uh, and and they're both sitting there and they, they have this awful look on their face too and I'm like boy I am in trouble <laughs> yeah you're going what the My hell did I do was way up yeah. I was like oh boy what did they find let me ask I you real quick at- let me ask yeah. you real quick Jason before you get to this to the story here sure uh, did was there anything in your mind did you see the mental health issues that, that your mom would was your mind able to go like this may be something really bad about my mom, or did you not even go there? You know, I didn't even go there uh, because my mom had attempted uh, previously twice. Mm. And once when I was 10, and I, I, we celebrated my, my 10th birthday at Carrier Clinic, which is the, the, the uh, psych ward where she was. So it was, wow. you know, we got, the, my, got my birthday cake came out of one of those vending machines. You know, mm. It was one of those. Um, but, uh, and previously, uh, she, she had also attempted but didn't end up going to the hospital because my father just kind of just let her stay upstairs and, and um, recover. That's a longer conversation. Um, but the, but there's a pattern in the history there and, and threats of, of such. And my mom was, you know, struggling with, with obviously mental health issues, but 
emotional regulation issues. And she was a, she was a she was a, a a force to be reckoned with at work. She was the assistant administrator of a of a uh, of a hospital and the director of nursing. She carried two roles. She was she was very well respected in her industry and her community. Nobody understood what was going on. She, she left the door uh, at work. She walked. She came home and everything fell apart. She was an alcoholic, uh, as as all of all of my family. Uh, it, my, the, the roots of my family tree go into bourbon barrels, mm. um, and it's just a, it's just a consistent pattern throughout uh, my my genealogy. But um, so, she, so she, there was it wasn't a surprise when it happened, but the shock of it when they sat me down um, was was such that uh, they, my, my father simply just blurted out, "Your mother's dead," and Oof. and I remember as I was sitting down, I said, "Shut up!" <laughs> like I just didn't even. Sing, it just bounced off of me, you know. And then they went to tell the story that she didn't show up to work, and uh, uh, so and she was she never missed a day at work. Um, so work got the priority. Every everyone else in our family, every, everyone else got the priority with my mom. It was she was very concerned about taking care of others. Uh, when she came home, that the people around her were, were secondary, including herself. Uh, it was the last. That was she. She was generous to a fault. Uh, um, and so the bottom line is that she ended up uh, uh, she and I got into a huge fight the day before actually and so the, the saddest part about this or at least from the outside when I tell the story is that my mom was trying to get me to move back in with her she kicked me out because uh, I was just I, I was deserving to be kicked out but I got kicked out a lot I was kicked out from my dad's house and back to my mom's house and back to, so I was a little bit of a bouncing ball at the time and uh, I had a little brother from my father's most recent uh, marriage. And so I wanted to get to know that baby. And so when she kicked me out and I moved in and I had this beautiful baby, she get to, to know him. And so she tried to get me to come back because we had a lot of animals. We had horses and goats and all sorts of stuff at the house I grew up in. And uh, she was doing this all by herself. And so she was pleading with me uh, the, the day before to come and help her uh, come back, move back in. And I said, Mom, I just can't. I can't keep getting kicked out. I can't, I can't go through this. I can't keep getting... You know, I'm just, it's, it's just not, I can't live like this. And she basically said, fuck you, I hate you, I never want to see you again. I'm not sure if I'm allowed to. Uh, Oof. Uh, you could say whatever you want here, absolutely. And then she went um, And then she went home and, um, and drank a bottle of booze and swallowed a bunch of pills. Um, mm. And so, you know, at first, of course, you go, I was the last person to see her, the last thing she said. I mean, I was the, I was the straw that broke the camel's back. Um, but for some reason, in... Instantly, I within two weeks, I had this. I had an understanding, and it wasn't necessarily uh, that. I just had an understanding that she needed to cut ties with me because I was the only thing holding her back, and so she was looking for something. She was looking for a fight, um, and there was nothing that I was going to do to prevent that. If, if it wasn't that day, it would have been another day. If it wasn't that circumstance, it would have been another. And so, thank the heavens that I had the, the insight to recognize that because that's her life um, and and I still feel the same way I do that I did two weeks after she died which is an immense amount of gratitude and an immense amount of, of, of love you know this is a woman who's obviously in a tremendous amount of pain but since that event I have I have a galvanized sense of optimism which is hard to explain but when I talk to other people who have lost uh, family members to suicide who've looked at this Sort of from a from a you know zoom out as much as you can and look at the big picture. Um, most of the people that I know that have been able to 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 work through this stuff have a similar view. Um, That's fascinating uh, that you were able to have that view at such an early stage to be able to put that into perspective and say, 
had it not been this event two weeks prior or, or the night prior um, from two weeks ago, it would have been a different event. And for you to have that insight, maybe you had help with therapists and people surrounding you and giving you insight, which I imagine you did. Um, but to be able to accept that and feel that, I mean, most kids would say, oh my God, I just caused my mom to do such a bad thing. This is my fault. My life's ruined. This is my fault. I, I, am, I am so grateful that for, by, by whatever grace, whatever, whatever resources, whatever, you know, that, that, that was, um, yeah, it was a, it was a very natural process that happened. Uh, I spent a lot of time by myself in those two weeks. Um, and it just settled in and, um, and I, and I have a better relationship with her now than I ever have. Now, when you say you have gratitude, uh, talk a little bit about that because that when somebody says here's that at face value they go what the hell is he talking about so you said you're great you have gratitude for her suicide and for the situation uh, dig into that for us yeah more so like i said before i i would argue that she gave me the gift of, of her suicide uh i my life now is is such that and it has been for a long time that i wouldn't change any of it um in fact i, I think that was probably something that i arrived at pretty young i wouldn't say i probably within two weeks i felt that way um but for sure um the the decision the things that came out at came after she wouldn't let me drop out of school for sure she was very focused on education um and so it it, there were all these limitations all these fears with her in life um that were an incredible burden to her and to everyone around her and uh and and being free to be myself uh, to, to and to to express myself and to explore my own potential and to explore my own uh, uh, strengths and weaknesses and all that stuff unencumbered um, has allowed me to become the person that I've always wanted to be. I mean, you know, for I I've, I, I I I would say that she being if a, if a mother's love is is pure, right? The the, the agape love, right? Um, if, if, if that's true, then, then that's what she wants in her highest and best self. Her highest and best self wants me to be that way, right? So, so my feeling is that, uh, that, that she gave me, uh, she opened the doors for me to, to, to be more of who I yes. was destined to be. So you're, and, say, and, so you're saying, Jason, that while her intentions were pure and, and she wanted what was best for you in her mind, had she not committed this terrible act your life's path would most likely have been very different it would have been it would have been very different my my not not to say there's anything wrong with with um with blue collar work or anything like that because i i i uh a lot of my friends and family are in the trades but my aspiration at that point after high school was probably to become you know an auto mechanic and that would have been great i would have loved it I, i love working with my hands but I've been able to go through through this amazing experience where I went to work on Wall Street as a young kid, and then I had a great career on my own firm for a while, and then I started this business where we help people. Uh, you know, help, uh, we've got mold. We help people navigate uh, mold problems in their homes so they can restore their property and, and uh, health and peace of mind. And so all of this stuff stems from. I would even argue that I, I'm, I've I've made a point of mining my history for future gold, if you will. So that there, there is a thing here where I feel like every single obstacle that I've had, every difficulty, whether it's you know in business or with my mom or with 
my own asthma, mold-induced asthma as a child. All of those things have turned out to be stepping stones for me. Mm. You know, my optimism comes from my mother's suicide. My 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 business of helping helping other people live healthier lives comes from my a false diagnosis of cystic fibrosis. What house that I grew up in? What, right? what do you mean, Jason? That your explain that your optimism comes from her suicide? My, from the sometimes you need to get shocked to wake up. Sometimes you need to get jarred. We're we all live on autopilot. Uh, I have a two year old little boy and a and a. And a uh, Four month old, and and I I watch the, the purity of their of their uh, emotions, and they have yet to be indoctrinated into the way they should think, feel, or act. They're just them, and but when you when you're a teenager, uh, the indoctrination kicks in, and I think that's what causes most teenagers to be teenagers. <laughs> mm-hmm. And you, there's a disempowerment. There's a there's a whole sense of. You know, gosh, this is going to be. I'm, I'm not being treated with respect, but they expect so much from me. There's all these difficulties in, 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 in teenage years, and there's just a daunting, daunting future. And I was, I was, I was a terrible student in the sense that I didn't want to do homework and I didn't show up to school most of the time, and I was getting in trouble all the time. All those things were resistance to life. They were resistance to a structure. They were resistance to. I didn't want to be like them. I didn't want to be. And when she killed herself, she forced me to look at what is it that she is or was that I didn't want to do, that I didn't want to be. And I was raised by pessimists. I mean, when a pessimist, diehard. My, my father, if he listens to this podcast, he will agree. He's a pessimist. Uh, you know, he, he just, he, 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 he's an editor. He looks for problems by, by training. And, and his trade is to find errors. Mm-hmm. You know, that's his perspective in the world. Um, right. Even his eyeglass prescription forces him to look at things differently, right? So the my mom had a similar pessimism. He was very fear fear oriented, and so that 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 sort of cataclysmic event had forced me to stop and, and 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 back up a little bit and give me the space to see it and to see them with love and compassion. How could you not have compassion for a woman who, who felt that this is too hard to handle? And, and that, that love and compassion, I was able to get some space and say, boy, if I did a, a Ben Franklin sort of, you know, pro and con, uh, you know, do you do the, the comparison? You list your parents, the pros and cons or strengths and weaknesses. And, you know, gosh, all those weaknesses that they had, I, I examined that and said, I can't be like that. I can't be like that. I can't live. If I live like that, if I duplicate their, their reaction to the world. Uh, the way that they move through the world, I'm gonna end up like them. Wow! And and so it was it was it was a wake up call of epic proportions that I will I, I I can't express enough gratitude for that. You articulate it very well, I have to tell you. So you end up back to where you were. You're at the gas station, and then and then your life starts taking a, a rapid change quickly, and, and you get into the business world. Take us take us through it. How did you go from gas station to Wall Street? <laughs> Quickly, uh, very quickly. So I was I was pumping gas. I was having a great time, uh, washing windows, changing t- you know, check, check, checking tire pressures, and fixing you know plugging tires and stuff like that. And uh, like I said before, I was getting more tips than I was actually earning from my my whatever it was seven dollars an hour I think at the time. And uh, and so the guy came in with a flat tire on his BMW, and he was in a big rush, and uh, and and he uh, asked me to put some air in his tire because it was flat. And uh, and I, I said, well, I can put some air in it, but it'll be flat again before you know it. <laughs> Uh, so if you give me a few minutes, I can maybe fix it for you. And he said, well, if you could do it fast, there's money in it for you. So I said, sure, pull over there. 
So uh, you can see the nail sticking out. I just pulled it out, plugged it, put some air in the tire. Within five minutes, he was ready to go. And so uh, I said, that's $5. And he put some cash in my hand and spit out. And when I looked at my hand, it was a $50 bill, which I thought was a mistake. So I, I, I thought he was going to come back for it. So I kept it. I put it in that little pocket in your jeans, you know, um, and because I, didn't, I wasn't going to mix it with anything else. I just wanted to make sure that if he came back, I could give it to him. And sure enough, uh, he did not come back until two weeks later when he came in for gas again because he was commuting and the train station was right around the corner. And uh, and he came in and and, uh, and I went up to him and I said, hey man, I, I don't know if you remember me. He's like, Jason, right? And I was like, well, how does he remember my name? Which of course is like the first rule and how to win friends and influence people, right? So right. he remembered the kid who fixed his tires first name. I didn't remember his name and he gave me a $50 bill. Um, <laughs> so so he, 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 I said, uh, I said, I don't know if, if you realize that uh, you gave me a, it was a $5 job and you gave me a 50 and he said I didn't have a 100 Ah, look at that. And I was like, wow. I mean, my small-minded thinking was yeah. so, so obvious back then. You're and going, said, you're well, going, you're going, going this guy's teaching me lessons left and right here in two seconds. Yeah. yeah. And he said, he said, where, where, he said I said, uh, I feel like I owe you a favor or something. He's like, kid, you don't get it. I would have missed the meeting. It was a very good investment. If anything, I owe you a favor. And I said, well, what do you do for a living? And he said, I work on Wall Street. And I said, how about get me a job? And he said, well, you only get life what you ask for. So write down my number and call me by 9 a.m. Call me at 9 a.m. tomorrow or don't ever bother calling me at all. Did you know what he, when he said I work on Wall Street at the age of 17, did you understand what that meant? No idea. No idea. No I just clue. said, give me a job. I you, think just, you just you just like the fact that he was, you like the fact that he was able to hand you a 50 and not blink and he was driving a BMW. So you want to do what he's doing. And honestly, he was this, he was overweight and he had bad breath and he had a beautiful wife. And I thought, man, he's doing something right. Um, <laughs> So, yeah. and Rand, his name is Randy Ashenfarb. He's one of one of my best friends, and he's like a brother to me um, now, of course. But um, but back then, you know, he just he was just a rough and tumble Wall Street guy, and he was just uh, you know take no prisoners. And so I, I I grabbed a pen and I and I went to go write down my number, write down his number, but I didn't have a piece of paper, so I started writing it on my hand. And uh, and he started laughing, and he rolls up his sleeve, and he had stock quotes written all over his forearm. <laughs> he goes, "You're gonna you're gonna fit right in here." So I. Uh, so he sped off, and I went home and told my dad that I just met a guy who 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 offered me a job on Wall Street. And he's like, "What?" He's like, "So what's the deal?" And I told him. He goes, "Well, if you don't call him, I'm going to call him for you." He's like, "You have to do that." Now, my father, uh, I that that most parents would have said, "Watch out, that sounds sketchy. What's he going to do with a kid from you know high school dropout and all this stuff?" My father didn't do that. He said, "That's that's that's something you have to pursue." So I called him at eight fifty nine because I was worried about that nine a.m. thing. And uh, and and he answered and goes, you called. And I said, of course I did. And he goes, no, kid, most people don't. I said, he goes, what are you doing today? I said, I'm going to work. He said, where? And I said, the gas station. He said, wrong answer. Wow. <laughs> I said, can we do that again? He said, sure. What are you doing today? I said, going to work. He said, where? <laughs> and I said, what's your address? There you go. Nice. And he goes, hold on a second. What's our address here? He's a little bit of a, he's a funny guy. 88 Pine Street, kid, 10th floor. See you soon. Click. No shit! Wow. And I was like, "What the? What am yeah. I gonna do?" I dad, I gotta borrow. I borrowed my my dad's penny loafers. I put on my finest pair of jeans for my Wall Street interview. I had no clothes to wear, you know. Right. And uh, I, put, I put on a button down shirt with a sweater over top. I was all frumpy, and I flip flopped my way up to to Wall Street. I took a train. There was a train station down down the street, and took a train into New York by myself, and found my way to to his office. I went upstairs, and there was a it was maniacal. It was a very famous. At the time, I didn't know it at the time, but it was a 
it became it was a penny stock firm it was the same same crew of guys that are described in the movie's boiler room and wolf of wall street same, yeah same guys. i was just watching wolf um, last night uh, ironically again it's oh yeah, sure. it's yeah, yeah it's it's jordan belfort uh and 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 it's jordan belfort and, and and the guys who owned Arpon were contemporaries and they were all playing the same dirty game yeah um and randy was the managing director the guy who recruited me um so i went in there and he uh he, he came out and he's like kid you showed up and i said yeah of course i did he goes no kid most people don't he said 90 percent of success in life is showing up and i remember him saying that and then years later i realized that's a woody allen quote um but it's but it's true and, and i and i learned later after i became a stockbroker and i tried to recruit kids from gas stations and if i saw a kid who had a great personality and he was a hard worker and i saw and i thought man you know look look what randy did for me i handed out probably 100 cards and maybe two or three kids actually followed through mm. so you started as a stockbroker at 17 i immediately he said so what's your schedule like and i said well uh my gas station career is is, is pretty flexible you know i can be i can be available for you uh, so he said, well, listen, kid, if, I, if you give me six months of your life, I'll make you rich. And I was like, okay, sounds good. <laughs> what else am I going to do, right? You're so, like dropping uh, out of, just dropping out of school things, working out really well here. Yeah, it's like a fast <laughs> track. Who knew? Yeah. Um, but let me ask you so, real quick, though, Jason, because I found it interesting. You said your dad was one, of, you know, an ultimate pessimist, and he'd, he'd admit to that. You had to be shocked at his reaction when he actually told you that you better call this guy. Yeah, I mean, he shocks me sometimes with, with, with where, where his pessimism and optimism uh, uh, manifest or how they manifest, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, I think he was always optimistic about my future, but maybe not about his. Got it, got it, okay. Uh, or, or, you know, I, I, I think that sometimes, you know, there, there, there was a lot of hope with my parents that I would be something, you know? Right. Uh, and every parent has that, right? But my mom would always say, one day you're going to get rich and you build a house in the back for me. Well, it's interesting. I think a lot of times, too, when, when a guy that's a person that's so pessimistic and typically goes against the grain and tries to play the other side or at least show you the other view, all of a sudden is the biggest cheerleader for something and saying, you better get on this and do it and proactive. It, it resonates. It, it carries a lot more weight. Like, wait a second. What does he know that I don't? You know, you almost think that he's able to see it. Yeah, you know, it reminds me a little bit of Willy Wonka or the Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Remember in the beginning where where Charlie finds the ticket, but his grandparents are all sleeping in one bed. Remember that? Right. They're like all they're just like completely losers. Right. And and but they see him and they're like so excited because <laughs> he might make it out of this place. Right. You know exactly. Uh, and yeah. I, a similar kind of uh, a feeling. When it's I think a good analogy. That. Yeah, it's interesting. So you end up doing the stockbroking thing, and did did he did he hold his word true, Randy? Did he make you rich in six months? <laughs> Well, I'll tell you, it, t- it took longer than six months, uh, but but I, but but it was it was hard. I mean, I sat there. It was back. It was the old days. It was before the internet, and it, so there was you know I had a green quotron in front of me, uh, so I only had you know the, I, I, if I had clients, they had to call us. But before I became a stockbroker, before I was able to get my stockbroker's license, the training was brutal. I had to sit there first. I called uh, Dun and Bradstreet. These basically just business owners, like a telephone book, and qualified them as potential prospects, and then handed the cards over. And then over time. Uh, I was given the ability to to reach out to them and and and, uh, and solicit investments from them. Um, and at the time, there was very the, the enforcement about regulations about like how to do that were were were, were zero. And so there's lots of lots of abuse that, that those firms were known for that. But anyway, I, I ended up uh, learning how to sell stocks over the phone, and it was four to five hundred phone calls a day, manual dials. And if you'd get forty guys to pick up, you might get ten guys to 
to, to, to listen to your pitch. And if one said yes and said, hey, kid, you know, I'll buy 100 shares or I'll buy 1,000 shares, that was the path to make a million dollars a year. You know, just one yes per day out of four to 500 dials. So that, if you do the math on that, that's a quarter of a percent success rate. That's a 99.75% failure rate. And that's the key. The, the, the path to success was was through a quarter of a percent chance of success. Wow. Right? So so, so if you look at that, that's like the eye of the needle, right? There's just nothing else for you. All you do is you sit there and dial. Sure. I would sit there and dial two phones at the same time and wait and see who'd answer, you know? Yeah. Um, and it was just one of those, you just, and, I, and so you want to talk about optimism. I got excited every day because I didn't know, I had a quote on my desk that said, you never know if the next guy you call changes your life, right? So just, you just dial. You just dial and dial. Sure enough, the guy who says, yep, yeah, I'll give you a chance. You do that You do that 365 days a year. And believe it or not, many of us work on Sundays, um, seven days a week, 5 a.m., 6 a.m. until 10 o'clock at night. That's how you get 500 phone calls in. And, uh, and sure enough, it started adding up. But I was at that firm for about a year and a half, and I saw behind the curtain and saw that they were doing bad stuff. And I wasn't. And I didn't have kids in college or a big mortgage, so I was able to leave. They went out in flames and glory, flames of glory that are well documented in all the financial publications. They got, took down the clearing agent who was their bank, and they, they, a bunch of other firms went out of business. Mm. It was a debacle, but I was able to, to break free of, of that and went to go work at a very reputable firm uh, for seven years after that, who's no longer in business. And then I got recruited at, actually out of a, a parking lot. I do well in garages, apparently. Uh, I, I got recruited out of a parking garage while I was getting my car by Mario Gabelli, who's uh, the founder of Gabelli Funds. Uh, he's a self-made billionaire. And he and I started chatting about stocks. He'd been on CNBC. I'd seen him that day. Uh, and I went over to him and I said, hey, I saw you talking on CNBC about Barrett Gold. Oh, I have some questions for you. And he's like, sure, let's talk. So we started talking and he recruited me to come work for him. So um, wow. somehow or another, the, 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 the garages and uh, the garages served me well. Yeah. yeah, that's fascinating. So, what what uh, forced you, or you know, got you to pivot from this lucrative? It sounds like a lucrative career on Wall Street to ultimately getting into this environmental uh, uh, got mold. You know, mold has become a very important thing, and that's become your mission. So, how did that all unfold? Well, so my my mom had me volunteer at the hospital where she worked. Uh, during the summers because I think mostly she was concerned I was going to burn the house down. So uh, she would have me volunteer, although quietly she paid me, I think, $5 a day so I could have, you know, like I could get stuff out of the vending machines and stuff. So it was kind of a, a little bit of a subsidized volunteer program. Mm. Um, but but it was it was great because I it was a, her ho- the hospital was a rehab facility and this physical and occupational rehab, brain trauma, that kind of rehab. Um, and a lot of people there that were, that were uh, recovering from, from very difficult situation a lot of amputees and volunteering there was uh in, i did it in dietary i did it in shipping or overseeing so i brought stuff up to the wards uh candy striping lots of different stuff and i got a sense of service from that that uh that really stuck with me the idea that i went to work all day and i remember going home and thinking my feet are so fucking tired but i feel so full my heart feels so full and i, I remember thinking about the people and how, how joyful they were and they were sitting there with no legs or no arms you know yeah, yeah. um and how grateful they were and, and that was just that, something that really sat with me uh uh, and stuck with me. And so when I went to go, when I was on Wall Street and I was making a lot of money, uh, when I decided to start my own firm, um, I uh, I was 22 or something like that. And and, uh, and I decided I was going to take five percent of proceeds, five percent of my of my um, uh, net revenues, 
and donate that to charities. But I did a bunch of research to see what kind of charities uh, I could actually see. I could watch, I see a dollar go in and see this result. You know, tra- like an investment, right? Um, as opposed to sort of blind philanthropy. You know, this idea of just sending money to these giant foundations, these these, these uh, large employers, basically. And so, uh, so I identified a couple that were really compelling: Habitat for Humanity and Operation Smile, uh, both of which you invest a certain amount. You can see a house built, or you can see a child's face transformed. And I became involved with Operation Smile very actively and started doing um, uh, uh, speaking at youth volunteer conventions, uh, Princeton University in Malibu, and then also doing some international missions. And that really, that was that was it for me. I said, you know, I'm doing it wrong. If I'm going away for two weeks, I never took a vacation, but if I went away for two weeks, if I took a vacation, I would come back more tired because I was too busy medicating myself, you know, either <laughs> drinking or eating or whatever. Yeah. And I came back and I was tired. I needed a vacation from the vacation. And I also wasn't able to really take a vacation on Wall Street because if you leave your desk for more than three days, someone else will be sitting at it, you know? Mm. So, um, so I, but when I went away for, for volunteer missions, uh, I would sometimes be away for up to two weeks, but my desk was somehow protected because I think, it was pretty hard to fire someone when they're doing volunteer charity uh, missions. And so, uh, but I come back so invigorated and so, so fulfilled. And so when the dot-com bubble burst, uh, the firm I owned the branch office of went out of business and I uh, realized that the market was going to be broken for a while because it was right around September 11th and it was, it was a whole, whole big thing. Um, so between the dot-com bubble bursting and September 11th, I decided to leave. And, uh, and I, I, it was really because I just decided one day I, 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 wasn't having fun. Uh, I had fun for nine years. And one day I woke up and I said, I don't want to do this. Like, I, I don't want to call people. I don't believe in the asset class. I had a lot of doubt. And so I uh, took a, uh, I, I walked into the to the office and I said, I'm out of here, Scott. And he's like, what do you mean? I'll see you in a little bit. I was like, no, I'm really out of here. And, uh, and so I quit. I just literally walked out one day. I made the decision in the morning when I woke up. Hadn't really thought about it before. And I quit that afternoon. Now, when you and walked was, out to quit, did you already have this mold uh, idea in mind, oh, or not yet? Zero. So zero. I, I I quit with without any idea about what I was going to do or where I was going to go. So uh, I sold I sold everything. I sold a bunch of stuff. I cleared out my apartment. I decided I was going to go on walkabout. Uh, and this was and I I quit August of two thousand one, right before September eleventh. Um, and I was going to do an around the world ticket, and I was just going to take my CDs. That shows you how when this yeah, was like right. Walk, so my C, I had CDs. And my journal, camera, I turned my phone off, I put an autoresponder on email, and I was going to do an around-the-world ticket, and then September 11th happened. So instead, um, and a bunch of my friends died in the buildings, because I used to commute through that building every day. Oh, um, and so that was a very that was very close to home. My CFO, uh, actually from my firm, he, when he, he left when my firm went out of business, and he went to work at Cantor Fitzgerald. He was always the first one in. And, uh, and, and he went down, he had a baby, he had a six-month-old. It was just terrible. Oh, um, the, oh. Most of the people I know that died on September 11th had little kids. I, I got to um, tell you, Jason, I was watching videos on September 11th last month, and um, I was in college when the towers went down that day. And it's amazing, 20 years later, sitting there watching it now with my perspective and having kids and just being more mature and older, of course, and life experience, watching those videos of, of those and listening to the interviews, I was... Man, I, I couldn't stop my tears from falling down just watching something that happened 20 years ago. I had never cried about it prior, but here I am, here I am 20 years later watching these videos and just bawling like a little kid. I can't imagine what that must have been like for you. You know, it's funny. I didn't cry about it 
for a long time either because it was so shocking. It was I was so uh, I, there was a sense of disbelief. Uh, I went back to visit the site after I'd been traveling, and I and I and I couldn't even believe it because uh, it, it, it was it was still not real until I actually went there. Right. Um, but it was it, it, and then I moved ultimately skipping over uh, just in the last five years. Well, five years ago I moved back into the city with uh, with Sarah, um, and we had uh, our our babies. But uh, and I was only three blocks away from the World Trade Center, so it's, this has been a central story of my life. You know, the whole the whole thing. In fact, I started on Wall Street a month after the first bombing. Check this out. And I quit a month before September 11th. So that's like bookends for me. Yeah. And so when people say, well, would you ever go back to Wall Street? And I said, well, no, my bookends are already in place. You know, yeah. <laughs> that's done. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's... that's the chapter. So what happened was I went traveling and, went, and I took a train from New Jersey up to, uh, they had this uh, uh, via rail Amtrak. Via rail is, Canadi- is uh, the Can- Canadian railway. So via and Amtrak had this deal where if you bought this package, you could travel between Canada and the U.S. You had to go in one direction, and you could, it was a 30-day pass, and you could have unlimited stops as long as you kept going in one direction. So I bought this and, and went from uh, Princeton, New Jersey, up to Montreal, and then to Toronto, and then Winnipeg, and then all the way up to Churchill, which is like the Arctic Circle, Hudson Bay, hung out with the polar bears on the tundra for a while, and then went back down, and then over to like Jasper and Banff and all the Canadian Rockies, and then all the way out to... Uh, Vancouver and Vancouver Island hung out there for a while and then went down to Seattle Portland L- L- uh, San Francisco and LA and uh, and I had some friends in San Francisco so I stayed there for a little while and then I flew to Hawaii from LA and while I was there I was still young enough that I could hang out at the, I could still live in the stay in the youth hostels and not be a creepy old guy yeah. uh, and, and I, I was sleeping on the beach and I was eating you know avocados from the farmer's market I was just like it was I was I was doing like college kids stuff because I'd never gone to college yeah um and I was but I had money and it was kind of fun and no one knew I had money so it was even more fun and I could just chill um and and so I while I was there I was reading a lot and writing a lot but reading a lot of the local newspapers and stuff and there was a story about this huge mold problem that had been discovered in the Hilton Kalia Tower um, and if you Google it, it's still to this day the, the, the biggest mold problem, uh, biggest mold remediation project in, in modern history. And what city was that in? And uh, it had been shut down for, for this mold problem that was discovered by a maid initially, where she found a little bit of mold behind a wallpaper, some wallpaper, and as she peeled the wallpaper up, she saw that it was the whole wall. And as, you know, they, this was in the early days of mold, so there was no such thing as a mold remediation protocol. There weren't even really mold remediation firms. There were asbestos, lead paint, and they would just throw on, you know, there's a different magnet on their car, on their trucks for, for, for the different environmental hazards, essentially. So there was the, the, these, uh, this mold remediation was, was underway at the time in this building in Hawaii. And there's the stories in the local papers were about people who, a lot of them were about people who got sick from the building, people who either worked there or, or stayed there. And there's one story that jumped out, and it was uh, about this 40-year-old guy who had developed adult-onset asthma. I'd never heard of that. Um, and he also suddenly developed sensitivities to foods that he had never been uh, sensitive to before, allergies and sensitivities, which was like, boom, deja vu. Because when I was about four, lost 30% of my body weight in a three-week period and uh, and was falsely diagnosed with cystic fibrosis, the, the six later we had another uh, round of tests and they concluded that I didn't have CF, I actually had asthma compounded by pneumonia and then they did allergy tests and I was allergic to literally everything in my environment. It was grass, wheat, corn, eggs, dogs, cats, cotton, 
So that means sheets, t-shirts, jeans, socks. That means, you know, I was living on a farm where we were surrounded by dogs, cats, grass, wheat, <laughs> you know, so everything in my environment was a source of, of difficulty. And uh, so I lived on inhalers mostly until I was 12. My folks split up at that point. I moved out or got kicked out and all my symptoms slowly started to go away. Uh, and, and, uh, and I would, I can remember now going back into the house occasionally and noticing some heaviness, noticing the odor and stuff like that, but never connected the house to the, to the, to the, uh, to the illness until I'm sitting here in Hawaii reading the story. And I thought, geez, I wonder if that old Trenton road made me sick. So I called my dad from a payphone, which probably isn't there anymore. Uh, and said, Hey, uh, do you think we had a mold problem at old Trenton road? And his exact words were Jason, we had fucking mushrooms in the basement. Of course we had mold. Oh, you know, why wow. do you ask? Wow. And I said, well, uh, because I just read this article and I, I think that's what made me sick. And he's like, well, it certainly didn't help. And he said, and it also didn't help that we had, you know, the cats and dogs used the bath, used the basement as a litter pan and we smoked. And, you know, it was just a disaster of an environment, an indoor air quality disaster. I mean, um, and so that immediately, though, it made immediately in that moment I said this is what I want to do I'm, gonna, I'm fascinated by not mold per se but how buildings impact people's health this is something people take for granted This buildings are building if we think about these things as boxes we live and store our stuff in or live work and store our stuff in but really they're an extension to, it, our, our homes and our workplaces are an extension of our immune system it's an exoskeleton and an exoskin filters out environmental pollutants or or allows them in or creates an environment conducive to the growth of things that can harm you. And if you don't maintain your building the way you don't maintain your body, you will suffer. It will impact your immune system. So in many ways, we are the building's immune system. And if we fail to do our work with that, it's a symbiotic relationship. And somehow that idea, I, I can articulate that clearly, but I had that notion at the time that there's a relationship here that needs to be explored. And, uh, and thinking about mold and moisture and, and this as a, as a ubiquitous fact of nature uh, and I began Googling it and seeing that there was nobody talking about this stuff. And I thought, man, this is just, this is going to be interesting. So I came back to New Jersey armed with curiosity and, uh, and took a job working for a mold remediation company. Turns out a bunch of those are ex-stockbrokers. So I thought these guys are thugs. Uh, that, you know, they're, they're just chasing dollars. And sure enough, they were abusing the consumer. They were using a lot of chemicals and they were just overcharging. And I thought to create a company that would serve as an advocate for them in the sense that we would be doing inspections we would be the first call and we would protect them from the contractors, do the inspections, do the testing, be completely agnostic, be completely uh, beyond uh, any conflicts of interest. And we would help them navigate the problem and we would create a report that would be the guidance document. This wasn't happening at the time. There was no such thing as, as a company doing this. And, uh, and, and, and it worked. We, I went around to doctors and told them what we were doing and, and I asked them if they had patients that they were unable to help. Uh, that were that they were not seeing any improvement, and so I got these referrals that were like these crazy cases, and and uh, and sure enough, we went into the house and found environmental issues, mold issues, got them corrected, and these people got better, and the doctors gave us more referrals. And around that time, I heard about a guy training dogs to sniff out hidden mold in buildings, and I thought that's just crazy enough to be brilliant. And I went down to Florida and met who would be my partner for 14 years, a, a Oreo um, mold sniffing dog, believe it or not. She was a labrat lab Labrador Retriever. Uh, put through a thousand hours of training, and she and I did thousands of inspections together. We were on Good Morning America and Extreme Makeover Home Edition, and thousands of, of, of newspapers, magazines, a couple of books, and 
working dogs, a couple college biology textbooks, it, it, and we never did any any PR. People people love the idea of a rescued dog helping uh, helping fix sick homes where little kids live, and uh, and so that became one eight hundred got mold, um, uh, and then that business uh, which is still still we serve primarily the, the Northeast region. Um, that 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 business uh, has morphed into. Uh, for the benefit of scale into uh, or from that business we learned that the consumer has a hard time affording a mold inspection a- average inspections around fifteen hundred dollars and that's cost prohibitive for most people most renters for sure uh, and so uh, we began looking at ways that we could help make mold testing or air quality testing affordable uh, for everyone and so from that uh, we created a do-it-yourself test kit called the got mold test kit you can go to got mold dot com g o t m o l d dot com and um, and and that that test kit is is a game changer for the consumer because uh, you don't have to worry about hiring anybody you don't have to worry about conflicts of interest you don't have to worry about the scientific validity we we have an exclusive deal with the number one lab in the country uh, so the results are are are, uh, are top shelf they're actually a, a full professional accredited lab analysis but you can test your house for. 100, you can test one room for $149, lab fees and shipping included. Mm. Um, and so the idea behind that is that we, most people don't take care of their mold problem because they're disempowered. It's either cost prohibitive or they're concerned about what they might find. Right. And so what we want to do is give people a safe way to figure out if their concerns are valid, give them a path with the resources and knowledge that we're giving them through our learning center at GotMold.com. The idea here is to teach a man to fish. Um, you know, our mission is to empower people with the tools and knowledge they need to make better decisions about the air they breathe. And so rather than doing it for them, which is what we've always done, we've always made rich people healthy. Uh, our job now is to give people leverage and tools so that they can protect themselves. Maybe they can break a lease if they've got a bad landlord using our kit. Or maybe they can uh, you know, get the attention they need if their moldy classroom is causing the problem. So you know, we had some teachers use our kit in a beta test for their moldy classrooms. So we look at it as a lever for change and a way to scale out the impact that, uh, the, that we were able to do on a, on a small regional basis through our inspection that's phenomenal. Uh, what a what a story. You've also been featured, in addition to Extreme Makeover and, and Good Morning America, you've been featured in Entrepreneur, Dr. Oz Show, and, and Wire, just to name a few. Um, Got Mold Test Kit, Real Science, Real Simple. It's amazing because so many times people don't want to even acknowledge things that they can't see, touch, or feel, right? And that's probably the biggest thing is that, you, you, oh, we have a mold problem maybe, but we can't see it. It's not really impacting us. But it, it really as you pointing out it's impacting you in so many different ways potentially that you don't even know so with the got mold, so with the got mold test kit jason how does it work what how does it work do they they get a um you know they open it up they put it down explain how it works and then what they do once they find how what their levels are sure if you want to have your house tested uh, for mold uh you would typically hire a professional who would come in well let me say this there's an entire spectrum of mold products, including mold products, ranging from gimmicks, like these $10 Petri dish test kits that you can buy at the Home Depot checkout, you know, the, uh, they're like these uh, impulse purchases. Uh, those are scientifically invalid. They don't work. They always grow mold. So, and by the way, if you're concerned about mold, the last thing you want to do is grow more in your house, and these are encouraging you to do that. <laughs> um, but then, and then there's also on the other side of the spectrum, there's these professional inspections where they can be thousands of dollars and often are. Uh, and so there's a there's this huge gap in the middle where there's a lot of question questionable products and, and they're, they're, they're the ones that are very well marketed are even more questionable and the ones that are not well marketed are actually usually scientifically valid so it's an unfair environment for the consumer 
And uh, and so what we decided to do was take the same, if you want to have your house by a professional, they come in equipped with a variety of tools, including an air sampling pump. And that pump is basically a vacuum device that pulls air through a cassette known as a spore trap. Uh, spore traps are, are the uh, most common tool for assessing uh, air qualities, especially when it comes to mold and what they call bioaerosols, which means biological particles that are suspended in your air, including pollen and, and, uh, and, and household dust and things like that. Your, ha- your, your air is more like stew than it is space. Um, it's got, there's a lot of, or even you can say it's like space, there's asteroids floating around. They look like they're, they're pollen. There's a lot of stuff floating around in your air that you can't see, taste, touch, taste, or feel, but impact you in ways that, like you said, you may not know until they're actually, until it's removed. A lot of people don't experience discomfort or they think they're not until the mold is is fixed and then suddenly they're sleeping well and they're not blowing their nose 10 times a day and they're not as fatigued and they're, you know, they're, they're finding they're not having as much uh, rage and anger and difficulty sleeping. So, so people oftentimes experience relief without knowing that they were sick in the first place uh, when, when an environment gets corrected. Uh, but the bottom line, when it comes to how our, our kit works, we took the same devices that the professional uses, that cassette, that spore trap, uh, and we took that pump and we reverse engineer it. We figured out how we can make one that's affordable, battery-powered, pulls the same airflow rate. Um, and so that interfaces with the same cassettes that professionals use all over the world. Uh, and so you buy the kit at gotmold.com uh, and soon on Amazon. And uh, it's 149 for one room, 199 for two rooms, 249 for three rooms. And uh, when you get it, there's there are two boxes inside the box. One has the air sampling pump. Uh, and it comes with batteries, so you can test right away when you get it. And then the other box has the cassettes in them, and that, that box that the cassettes come in is also a prepaid return mailer. So there's very little waste in the in the packaging. You, you pump out, you put the batteries in, you take the cassette, you do an outside air sample, uh, five minutes. So you, you, you bring it outside about five feet away from your, your most used entrance to grab a, an outside reference sample. And then you sample in the areas of concern in your home. Uh, so generally people have a pretty clear idea. Most people know if they have a mold problem where it is because the odor is that giveaway or they have an intuitive sense. I've had pregnant women get down on the floor uh, and, and point with their, like with their, and point to a spot on the wall. And then later we bring the dogs through and the dog would alert exactly where the woman had pointed, you That's know? Nice so people have a pretty good sense of, of where, where there's a problem in their home. And so they, we, we recommend that they uh, sample in complaint areas uh, and also areas of, of concern like children's rooms and nurseries and playrooms and things like that. Uh, and then you put the consent back in the prepaid mix return, return mailer. Uh, they go to our lab partner uh, uh, and then they're analyzed within two business days. The results are distributed through our, uh, through our app. So you get a really nice uh, report with a clear interpretation of the lab results with a green, yellow, orange, or red indicator determined by what we find. And uh, and then you get the actual lab data. And then behind that, you get a, a list of recommendations that are that are driven by your specific issue, or at least an opportunity to address each one, whether you're looking for a remediation contractor, we have a link to the institution where they're certified, an inspector, a different association. Uh, we offer a 45-page ebook filled with inspection checklists and, and frequently asked questions about the subject. Uh, as well as some online tools for self-assessment that are also free. So uh, really, this is this is uh, is built to enable people to do this comfortably. No one's looking over their shoulder. They don't have to worry about getting permission uh, to buy this because it's it's a relatively affordable product, right? So uh, the idea here is to is to uh, is to to take most people who are sitting there thinking, what if, what if, what if, and then to either 
validate their concerns or give them peace of mind. Yes, and then on top of that, that you uh, you did address it. Once, let's say somebody does have an issue, they're in a red zone or, or a high mold uh, situation, there are recommendations and contractors that you guys link to so that they can get this fixed. Yeah, so right now we link them to the trade associations where they're certified uh, and the reputable trade associations because there's lots of certifications that aren't worth the paper they're printed on. But the... Um, the, uh, the next phase for us is after we finish building out the learning center, we're doing a bunch of online courses, which we'll give away for free. Misinformation is abundant in this, in this industry. I would say 99% of the stuff you read online about mold is inaccurate. Hmm. Um, even with the best of intentions, if they're just wives' tales and, and, and myths that are perpetuated, like bleach. Bleach is not the answer. Um, 90, 98% of bleach is water. 2% of it's sodium hypochlorite, which evaporates quickly when you put bleach on a surface. So what it's done is it's made the, the surface bleach so you don't see it, but it leaves behind all this dead fungal material and what? Water. Um, so yeah. now you've basically added water to a water Here's problem and left problem. behind all the fungal material, which is the most ideal food source for mold. Mold loves to eat mold more than anything. Mm. So uh, so you've just really, truly amplified a situation, but you have the false idea that you've done something because it smells clean, according to Americans' idea of clean, uh, and also it's white, which again is America's idea of clean, but it is neither clean uh, nor remediated. And so these kinds of things we have to educate against. Uh, and so we're building online courses to, to we'll give away for free and, and market those courses. We want people to take them for free um, so that we can arm them with, with uh, the knowledge they need to, to make better decisions. And then the last thing that we're building is an actual referral network, application only, professionals can apply like a LinkedIn profile, uh, and then, and then uh, provided that they qualify uh, we'll make give them access to uh, to our customer base, uh, and but it'll be a complete meritocracy if they get uh, negative reviews, if they're if they're uh, caught with any sorts of conflict of interest, or if they violate our uh, our um, uh, code of ethics, they'll be removed from the network. But the idea here is to uh, and they, they have to test into the network too. We're not charging them like an advertisement. They have, we're actually uh, only charging them to, for knowledge verification. Once they prove that they're qualified and they pay us to get on the network, the leads are free. It's, it's between the customer and the, and the contractor. This is absolutely fascinating stuff and uh, really appreciate it. Guys, check them out online, gotmold.com. You can email them, jason at gotmold.com. And uh, we'll link you up in the show notes. Uh, really appreciate your time today and your insight and being open and, and raw throughout this entire conversation. And uh, just the word that comes to mind when I sit and talk to, to you and people like you but especially you in this example is just resilience and everything that you've overcome and gone through in your life uh it now makes sense it's led you to where you are today it's led you exactly to where you're supposed to be i wouldn't change it for the world yeah i mean it's i thank you for the thank you for the kind and and supportive words yeah i i, I appreciate your time here nate and i and i thank you for inviting me to the show